This is Gary Giddens, and I'm here to offer a commentary on Stanley Kubrick's fourth feature film, Paths of Glory, generally regarded as his first masterwork. Briner Productions was Kirk Douglas's company, and his participation made this film possible. Douglas was at the peak of his stardom in 1957, and his salary accounted for more than a third of the film's near-million-dollar budget. The company Kubrick formed with James B. Harris also gets a production credit, but Douglas's involvement obliged Kubrick to direct other films for him, an obligation that Douglas forgave after their second more contentious collaboration on Spartacus. Gerald Freed, who began his career with Kubrick, scored Paths of Glory, combining music and sound effects to Kubrick's specifications. Both men born in 1928 and raised in the Bronx. We'll talk more about him later. But note here that behind the opening credits, he offers a strange, brass-laden arrangement of the Marseillaise, which was composed in 1792, months before the Republic was decreed. Three years later, it became the French national anthem. However, this arrangement is not what the Republicans had in mind. It is slightly distorted and almost drowned out by the ominously over-recorded snare drum. During the closing credits, Fried uses a similar mirror image arrangement of a German song of roughly the same vintage, The Faithful Hussar, an ingenious symmetry, one of many, that gives this film an Aristotelian perfection. We begin with a brief narration read by Peter Capel, who will appear in the role of chief judge in the court-martial. He reads only about 40 words, but provides the aura of a documentary. Kubrick also used narration in The Killing, and a lot of war films did going back to Casablanca 15 years earlier. This long shot distances the French army, almost suggesting toy soldiers, dwarfed by the magnificent palatial architecture of Schlesheim Castle, which was also used in the World War II film by Anatole Litvak, Decision Before Dawn, and Alan Renee's last year at Marienbad. A car has arrived, delivering General Brouillard, played by Adolf Manjou. This interior was filmed at Bavaria's Gesellgesteig Studios. We are now in the improbably luxurious home office of General Miro. Brulard flatters him about the artwork and the carpet, which covers a small portion of the parquet floor made up of squares with a cross in each square, as we'll see, perhaps a symbolic indication of the double-crossing gamesmanship that is at the heart of this film, but significantly not of the novel. In the Humphrey Cobb novel, Moreau, played by George McCready, is more pointedly named General Asselant, and the Brulard character is not named at all, though he is clearly based on General Joseph Joffre, the 64-year-old commander-in-chief of the French army, who was relieved of his command after the butchery at Verdun and the Somme in late 1916. McGreedy, as we saw, walks with the ramrod posture of a ramrod officer, and in the three-shot, we saw for the first time that rather magnificent scar on his right cheek. There it is. In context of the film, we assume it to be the cherished souvenir of a duel. In truth, McGreedy got it in a car accident, and it doomed him to either corrective makeup or parts of pernicious villainy, none more impressive than his unforgettable work here. Born in Rhode Island, McCready had a prolific Broadway career in the 1930s, playing Shakespeare and drawing room dramas. And he was in his mid-40s when he came to Hollywood, playing an improbable nice guy in the flag-waving review Follow the Boys. It's out of the question, but his impeccably snooty articulation and gritty baritone, along with that scar, found more traction on the dark side in such films as Gilda, The Big Clock, and Detective Story in the last as an abortionist hunted down by Kirk Douglas. 
The Versailles splendor here will remind many of the final setting for the aging astronaut in 2001. Indeed, later this studio will even resound with the strains of the Blue Danube. The very fine novel by Humphrey Cobb, frequently disparaged in books about Kubrick, you can judge for yourself as it was recently reprinted, begins with a long trek by the exhausted, depleted troops that will be ordered on the suicidal charge on a German entrenchment called the Pimple in the novel and the Antill in the film. In the film, ironically, we have only Moreau's testimony to the inadvisability of that attack, and his initial refusal to mount the attack is the only sensible remark he will make in the entire film. While Cobb is merciless about every aspect of war, Kubrick and his writers have constructed an intricate series of chess-like matches, and this is the first of them, as wily old Brulard flatters and bribes Moreau into sacrificing his men. In the novel, the pimple must be attacked because a mistaken press release said the attack had already taken place and the high command doesn't want to have to answer to the press. Here, Kubrick allows a certain legitimacy to the target. Born in Pittsburgh and a veteran of World War I, Adolf Manjou was 67 when Paths of Glory was made. He was one of the screen's great actors. Famously understated in the silent era, he was outstanding as the wealthy cat in Chaplin's A Woman of Paris. In the sound era, he became a fast-talking comedian and reliable character actor in such well-remembered films as The Front Page, The Milky Way, A Star is Born, Roxy Hart, and State of the Union. Yet Manjou was also a fuming, militant right-winger who eagerly appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee, suggesting that commies should be shot down in the streets. He had a sense of humor, though. Asked how he could work with left-wing filmmakers, he once said, because I'm a whore. A vain dandy known for his hand-tailored suits, he was robbed of his wardrobe while shooting Paths of Glory. And now we're going to cut directly to the Antill. This is one of the defining stylistic ideas in the film, these abrupt cuts instead of dissolves and slow fades to black, although there were a few of those. Here we see the uh, expendable men. The first of two remarkable tracking shots within the trenches, something that had never been done before as Moreau reviews the men. Notice his chipper, almost phase salute. Ready to kill more Germans? Yes, sir. The sequence is about two and a half minutes long and is central to the dramatic precision of this script as he passes four major characters, including the three men he will eventually put before a firing squad asking ludicrous questions of them, ready to kill more Germans. The first that we saw was Tim Carey, legendarily defiant character actor, tall, hovering, haunted, politely responding to the idiotic questions. And here is Ralph Meeker as Paris. And notice at center screen in the rear is Wayne Morris as the cowardly, vengeful Roger, Lieutenant Roger, who will play an important role in a subplot involving Paris. Carry on. Ralph Meeker came across the Paths of Glory script at a friend's house, made an appointment with Kubrick to read the part of Paris and got the job immediately. He was born in Minneapolis in 1920. Never quite achieved the leading man status expected of him. He became famous by replacing Marlon Brando in the original Broadway production of Streetcar Named Desire. Yet by 1957, despite memorable performances in such films as Glory Alley, The Naked Spur, and most memorably Kiss Me Deadly as the snarlingest Mike Hammer of all time, he was doing more TV than cinema. He never lacked for work, yet he really got roles worthy of him and pretty much left the business by the time he was 60. In this scene, which stops just before the third man who's going to be executed, Joe Turkle, he instead questions an obviously shell-shocked soldier played by Fred Bell. 
I beg your pardon, Sergeant. There is no such thing as shell shock. And this gives Kubrick the chance to stage a famous incident from World War II, General George Patton's slapdown. The American army was notoriously oblivious to battle fatigue, and it suppressed John Huston's documentary on the subject, Let There Be Light, much as France would suppress Paths of Glory for 20 years. Throughout this scene, Richard Anderson's Saint-Aubin salves Moreau's ego, setting the stage for his particularly nasty turn as the prosecutor in the court-martial. And now, nearly nine minutes into the film, we are about to encounter the star, Kirk Douglas, as Colonel Dax, a character unlike any in the novel. There is a Dax in the novel, but he isn't a lawyer. He doesn't defend the men. He does know right from wrong, but is willing to keep it to himself. The movie Dax is actually a composite character drawn from several figures in the novel, plus some Hollywood leading man conventions. This, after all, is a Kirk Douglas movie. There must be a social conscience, and there must be a scene with Douglas's shirt off. He actually had that written into his contracts, one scene with a bare chest. As Moreau boasts of his constant activity and courage, Dax tries to look interested and makes a joke that isn't appreciated. He is clearly, however, a professional soldier, an important point in this film's outlook. During one take of this scene, Douglas stood up too quickly and banged his head, nearly knocking himself out. They must have re-staged that because we don't really see a moment like that. Douglas, at age 40, was one of the last great stars of the studio system. Born in New York into an impoverished family, he struggled on Broadway, but made his mark in Hollywood in 1946 as the last thing you'd expect him to play, a pathetic milk toast in The Strange Love of Martha Ivers. During the next decade, he became the anti-Brando, a highly emotional, occasionally tormented, often brutal, gritted teeth leading man whose aggressive style shunned the interiority of the method and yet held nothing back. Douglas, who defied the blacklist with Spartacus, was a hands-on producer who believed that the auteur was the man with the power, and that was him. Paths of Glory was a collaboration. Douglas not only made the film possible, but he kept Kubrick, who needed a hit, honest, refusing his suggestion of a happy ending, while guaranteeing by his very presence an ethical conscience that countered the utterly bleak outlook of the novel. He had already created a gallery of remarkable performances in Champion, Young Man with the Horn, Ace in the Hole, Detective Story, The Bad and the Beautiful, and Lust for Life, and Colonel Dax is one of his best performances. Paths of Glory is largely free of expository dialogue. It's a well-written script. But here is an exception as Dax makes a pointless pun about impregnable and pregnant so that Moreau can inform us all of Dax's renown as the foremost criminal lawyer in all of France. Douglas is terrific in this scene, expressing his silent loathing at Saint-Aubin's comments about the herd instinct. Notice how Saint-Aubin leaves the scene with a rather supercilious and unreturned salute. Dax learns his orders and Moreau Cooley figures how many men are certain to be lost, about 60%. This calculation would later be parodied in Dr. Strangelove when George C. Scott talks about getting our hair must by a nuclear war. To return to Humphrey Cobb, Paths of Glory is his one major work. An American born in Italy, Cobb was often thought to be Canadian because at 17 he hitchhiked to Montreal and enlisted in the Canadian Army. Wounded in action during World War I, he wandered around for several years before publishing Paths of Glory in 1935. The story was based on an actual wartime incident. 
uh, for which the French government apologized decades later while refusing to remunerate the families of the men who had been wrongfully executed. The novelist Elizabeth Bowen considered Cobb's novel more powerful than All Quiet on the Western Front, and its initial success led to a stage adaptation by Sidney Howard that failed on Broadway. Cobb tried his hand in Hollywood and co-scripted a Pat O'Brien Humphrey Bogart programmer at Warner called San Quentin. His only other novel was serialized in Collier's Weekly in 1938, but was not considered good enough to publish as a book. He died at 45 in 1944. Dax's embarrassed quotation from Dr. Johnson is one of the film's few reliable laugh lines. It never fails. Uh, largely because of Douglas's embarrassed delivery of it. Miro threatens to furlough him, but Dax is the good soldier, and it's important to note that he does vow at this point to take the anthill, making him as complicit as everyone else in the madness of this attack. We're about to meet Roger, the duplicitous, cowardly, vengeful, and really most pathetic figure in the film. The subplot involving Roger and Paris directly mirrors the plot involving Moreau's crime in attempting, as we will see during the uh, battle, to bomb his own men, to attack his own men, and the fact that he leaves a witness much as Roger has a witness in Paris. This is probably the most impressive film work by Wayne Morris, who died at 45 in 1959. He had been a contract player at Warner Brothers for 15 years. He's probably best remembered as the prize fighter, managed by Edward G. Robinson in Kid Galahad, a film that was later remade with Elvis Presley in Wayne Morris's role, and not as effectively. Drunk, cowardly, as noted, Roger is asked to take two men on a reconnaissance mission, including his old school rival, Paris. This sequence is taken straight from the novel, but it has an important consequence unique to the film. This subplot might be described as war as a continuation of high school, which certainly connects to the notion of vanity in the poem that gave the novel and the film its title. It's an elegy written by Thomas Gray in 1750, and the relevant lines are, the boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead to the grave. In Cobb's description, this mission involves a sense of fear and dislocation that makes Roger's actions partly understandable. And it would probably be directed that way today with a lot of fast cutting and confusion for the audience as well as the soldiers. Think of any number of the films that have been made in Iraq where there's so much cutting that it attempts to suggest that the soldiers on the ground don't know what's going on and we don't quite know what's going on when in fact in Kubrick's direction, the soldier always knows at least what's in front of his nose. The clarity here is really quite extraordinary, and it's, it's very different from the way Cobb handled it. This and the great battle sequence to come uh, is a model of clarity involving precision, economy, minimal cutting, and an emotional and physical distancing that allows us to see all too clearly what's happening. 
Here the cutting is between long shots where the three men crawl on their bellies, not unlike ants on a hill, and close-ups timed to the spear percussion, including timpani, on Gerald Fried's soundtrack. Kubrick's clarity is particularly damning in that it underscores the hapless insanity of Roger's actions. A recent film that comes to mind is The Green Zone, directed by Paul Greengrass. I don't like that film, you may, but it's very similar to Paths of Glory and a lot of its intentions. But in all of the opening scenes, there is so much cutting to suggest a sense of dislocation that we don't know what's going on for a while. And I would argue that this is not necessarily what happens. The soldier at least knows what's in front of his nose, however terrified he is about what's coming on both sides. And to try to suggest otherwise through a lot of fancy cutting is simply confusion when we really want to know what is going on. Where are we? Where are the men in relationship to the, the enemy? And Kubrick never lets us down, and uh, that's one of the reasons why the, the shot coming up of the actual battle is still, after more than 50 years, one of the most astounding shots ever made in a war film. The problem in this reconnaissance mission begins when Roger splits up the patrol in violation of army protocol, an instance of an inept officer's power countermanding common sense and leading to chaos and a microcosm of the horror to come in the battle. Roger removes a hand grenade from his belt. We're not quite sure why. But once that hand grenade is, is on the rim, Kubrick makes it the forefront of the picture. It's one of his uh, harbingers of something to come, the old line about the rifle on the wall at the beginning of a story must, before the end of the story, go off. And that hand grenade is going to go off. And the result is that he will kill one of his men, leaving his school rival Paris as a witness to a crime that might put him in front of a firing squad were he not an officer. And through all of this, Gerald Fried's drums seem to be observing the action. Freed, incidentally, enjoyed a prolific career in movies and television, scoring such series as Gilligan's Island and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Well, a job is a job. But in the 1950s, and we'll talk more about this later, he really did some quite remarkable work, most of it with Stanley Kubrick. And apparently they fought over what Freed described as Kubrick's intimidating manner, but they did some excellent work together. Unlike the World War I film to which Paths of Glory is most frequently compared, All Quiet on the Western Front, there's not a lot of gore in this movie. Raymark has scenes, as Cobb does in the novel, that are pretty terrifying. And in Milestone's film of All Quiet, he has a scene where a man is right out of the novel, is holding onto barbed wire, a bomb goes off, and then only the hands are holding the barbed wire, the body has been destroyed. But this is the one scene, Kubrick, one shot, I should say, where Kubrick really does shock us as Paris goes and looks for the body. And we get a pretty frightening shot of what a body looks like after it's been torn apart by a hand grenade, smoke still coming from the body. So Roger is back in his hole writing a report. 
he assumes that Paris is dead. It's not very clear why he would think that. In the novel, he has reason to think it, but he just figures it's, it's awfully dangerous out there and somehow Paris is not going to make it back. And so he's quite astounded when he does. And Paris instantly begins assaulting him verbally. We're in totally agreement with him. We've, see, we've seen what Roger has done and we've seen what Roger is. But it's in the nature of military command, and that's what this movie is partly about. It's about these manipulations of power and class, and not necessarily just social class, because the very fact that Paris and uh, Roger went to high school together tells us that outside of the army, they're probably of the same class. But the stripe that Roger gets puts him into a relatively invulnerable position in terms of the high command. So with every assault that Paris mounts against him, however just, he is really digging his own grave, something he can't possibly know. The great line here is when uh, Roger says, whose word do you think they're going to believe or accept, which is really the issue. Are they going to accept? Would they prefer to accept the word of an enlisted man or of a brother officer? Bring charges against an officer? Right now, we have a subtle echo of the dance that we've already seen between Generals Moreau and Broulard. There's a moment when Morris actually puts his hand on Paris, attempting a dance of soldierly compromise, but he quickly withdraws it in response to Paris's evident contempt. And there's that <laughs> very... Very subtle look that he has to give. Doesn't take anything more than that. Oh, good morning, Colonel. At ease, man. I've been waiting for your report, Lieutenant. And now Dax comes in and is not going to learn anything. For some reason, Dax uh, doesn't seem to be aware of the kind of man Roger is yet. Go get some sleep. Uh, and this very gratuitous compliment Wayne Morris delivers so well with that half smile is very similar to uh, a scene we're going to see much later when the witness against Moreau's actions, the artilleryman Rousseau, is similarly dismissed with an insult, but nevertheless the idea is to get rid of him while there's somebody even higher in command present. Artillery starts at 0515. And here Dax issues the orders. We haven't really gotten the sense other than in Moreau's opening refusal to mount the campaign, of how depleted this group of men is. The novel makes it very clear that they've just come back from the front. And they're expecting at least a couple of days, and they don't get it. And not only don't they get it, but they're ordered into a, the maw of hell here, an objective that nobody's been able to take. This is very much... Uh, one of the themes that runs through the history of the First World War. Men on both sides battling for days, weeks, months over a plot of ground and tens of thousands of lives being lost just to move forward inches. We also are going to hear Joe Turkle's first really important moment. It's his peroration about the fear of death versus the fear of pain, a speech that's taken directly from the novel. Joe Turkle uh, was born in Brooklyn. He was not quite 30 when Paths of Glory was filmed. 
He had done bits in dozens of films, frequently uncredited since the late 1940s, but Kubrick liked him and used him in three pictures, The Killing, along with Tim Carey, Paths of Glory, and later, and perhaps most memorably, in The Shining as the phantom bartender Lloyd, who was so eager to give Jack Nicholson his first drink. The other soldier sort of just listens, and then he delivers the line that uh, closes off this scene, nobody wants to die. And as he says it, we have one of the film's very few fades to black. And then a shot of the anthill once again through the binoculars, which means that General Moreau is back because the binoculars are the only way he's ever going to know the anthill. Moreau is safely ensconced with his admiring aide, played by Richard Anderson, and his cognac. And notice how Sanoban refuses to drink until the general has imbibed. He never stops flattering the general. To France. This is a, a memorable shock edit now, right here, to the thrilling tracking shot, really a companion to Moreau's earlier walk through the trenches. But this time, the camera initially moves forward at a fairly brisk tempo as the men step out of the way. A reverse shot shows that we have been seeing Dax's point of view as the camera retreats before him. When Moreau walked through, he was the only man ducking, as though he were afraid to get dirt on his uniform. Everybody else rather conspicuously stood up straight. This film is often described as an anti-war film. I agree with Alexander Walker, who co-authored the excellent Stanley Kubrick director, that it is no such thing. The novel is relentlessly anti-war, in the tradition of Raymark's All Quiet on the Western Front. But this film is about power, class, manipulation, and the absurdity of war is a continuation of those civilian instincts. Most of the few genuinely anti-war American films concerned World War I and were made before 1935, including The Big Parade, Four Sons, and Lewis Milestone's film of All Quiet on the Western Front. But films made about the First World War after World War II, like Lafayette Escadrille or Lawrence of Arabia, were more likely to take a more cautious approach, focusing on daring do, personal tribulations, and the fundamental absurdity of war without demonstrating the total outrage of Humphrey Cobb's novel. Now he's about to issue the command. And before he does, he takes out his pistol and his whistle and counts down for the attack, which is this astonishing sequence of nearly seven minutes. If you freeze the frame right here, as Dax climbed out of the trench, stooped over with his whistle, arm raised to lead the charge, you have a moment taken from the novel concerning the courageous Colonel Carpentier, who is one of the characters that make up the Dax composite. But this is how Humphrey Cobb wrote it. Carpentier climbed onto the smoking parapet, shouting and waving to the men to follow. He stood there, waving and shouting, an heroic-looking figure fit for any recruiting poster. He did not feel heroic, though. All he felt was the blister on his heel and the intoxication of the vibration all around him. Men started to scramble over the parapet, slipping, clawing, panting. Carpentier turned to lead the way. The next instant, his decapitated body fell into his own trench. Now, that's the kind of moment that occurs several times in Remarks, All Quiet on the Western Front, and that Milestone recreated in his film version. 
As I noted, Kubrick avoids that kind of gore and decapitation. But the image of Dax looking heroic there, fit for any recruiting poster, did in fact become the poster that advertised Paths of Glory on its initial run in 1957. So here we have this amazing shot, the most amazing shot in the film, an assault moving constantly from the right to the left, one camera basically, the ants crawling out of their hole and towards the no man's land before the unobtainable objective. And again, we have Kubrick's extraordinary sense of clarity and objectivity achieved for the most part with a one tracking shot that rejects the subjectivity of war, the horror, the fear, in favor of the cold fact of men used as cannon fodder, anonymous and doomed. The incredible noise of the bombardment is interspersed with the whistling of Dax. The camera pulls back and then zooms in so that we always know where Dax is in relation to the men. He is our point orally and visually. The view is obliterated by the mortar shell. Bodies have begun to fall by the wayside but there are no inserts of screaming men, no shots of the enemy at all, just a long charge into the maw of obliteration. This extraordinary shot was considered so novel at the time that four years later, in 1961, Francois Truffaut, who was about to shoot his second feature, Jules and Jim, actually wrote Kubrick a letter asking for permission to borrow it. The entire battle was shot in 5,000 square foot area belonging to a German farmer some 40 miles away from the studio. The details were supervised by a technical consultant, Baron Wolfgang von Waldenfels, who was Germany's leading authority on the First World War, in which he served as a member of the high command, and also the editor of a diary about the Hessians in the American Revolution. Well, right after Dax falls uh, beautifully into a close-up, the plot thickens. In the midst of disaster, Dax and Moreau each realize that B Company has not left the trench. Moreau orders Captain Nichols to convey an order to the battery commander, Captain Russo, to fire on his own men. And, of course, Russo refuses without a written order. So we see again that parallel story point coming into view. This will play right into the melodramatic demands of the film, just as Paris is the potential witness against Roger's perfidy on the reconnaissance mission, Rousseau and Nichols will survive as witnesses to Moreau's criminal order. And to make that parallel perfectly explicit, Dax races to B Company and who is in charge, but the cowardly Roger. Kubrick was fascinated by war. It's hard to think of many filmmakers who are more devoted to using war as a primary theme. Sam Fuller, I suppose, and William Wellman. Those are the two that come to mind. Wellman and Fuller, however, were veterans who saw a lot of action and were somewhat nostalgic about their experiences in the war, so they were coming at it from that personal knowledge. He says it must be a mistake. Confirm the order, Captain. Yes, sir. With Kubrick, it's, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, Kubrick's idea of war being an extremity that brings out character. But he, he approached war in most of his films. He only made 13 features. But there were battles and there were deadly killings in, in, in all of them, actually. Well, at least there are deadly killings in all of them. I mean, Lolita is not a war film, but it begins with a long murder sequence. His first film was a war film, a Fear and Desire. And uh, I guess the most devoted war film uh, that he made after this, the most explicitly battle-designed film, was uh, Full Metal Jacket, which is a film in two parts, first about 
again, the conflict between the man in charge, the uh, drill sergeant, and the grunts in training, and then the madness of going to war and finding virtue and becoming a killing machine. There were great battle sequences in Barry Lyndon and hilarious ones in Dr. Strangelove. This is a strange moment here. In the novel, Humphrey Cobb is very explicit about the fact that the guys cannot get out of the trench. We don't quite see that. They're just all standing around. And uh, this ultimately, uh, of course, they don't want to be cannon fodder. They don't want to go up there and be shot. But that's the order. And so one could argue, as Miro does, that they are in, in mutiny against that order. Now, that moment just happened. Uh, Dax tried to get out of the trench and is knocked back by a dead body falling on him. Is something we will later learn also happened to Corporal Paris. And in the novel, in fact, the scene with Paris is described. He's knocked completely unconscious. But at this point, Douglas, who is wearing enough makeup to go into a minstrel show, clearly realizes that this action is lost, and there's nothing that can be done about getting these men out. Arrange for the immediate relief of the 701st Regiment. This scene resolves with a memorable line. Those little sweethearts won't face German bullets, they'll face French ones! A truly strange Lovian moment, but also one at the core of Humphrey Cobb's vision of war makers. Here we had another wonderfully abrupt edit to the Chateau at Gesellgesteig Studio, accompanied by the precision sound of snare drums. We are now privy to a triangular meeting between the three chess players, Miro, Dax, and Brulard. And here, as Dax defends the men while apologizing for seeming to be insubordinate, they haggle over how many sacrificial goats will satisfy Moreau's vanity, down from 100 men to 12 to 3, all of this taken directly from the novel. So this seems a good time to talk about the contentious writing credits. You may have noticed they are shared by Kubrick and two novelists who never actually worked together on anything, the then-admired but now little red Calder Willingham, and the then unknown and now treasured paperback writer Jim Thompson. It was Kubrick's idea to option Humphrey Cobb's novel, which he had read as a boy in his father's office. He began writing the script when he briefly expected to work at MGM with Jim Thompson, who had collaborated on The Killing and been cheated by Kubrick of his rightful credit. Thompson was listed not as co-writer of The Killing, but as the contributor of dialogue, something the Writers Guild would not allow today. At the same time, Kubrick had been working on another aborted project with Calder Willingham. At some point, he gave the script worked up with Thompson to Willingham. In his splendid biography of Jim Thompson, Robert Polito convincingly argues that Thompson contributed significantly to the final film, but in lieu of an interview with Willingham, he received an astonishing letter that, if nothing else, proves that his ego was a match for Kubrick's. Willingham insisted that the film, and I'm quoting here, was 99% my own work, a lot of it done right there on a typewriter at the studio, that would be Gesellgersteig. Stanley had in the script literally two lines, and they were not important lines. Jim Thompson wrote not a single line of dialogue that appeared in the film. Calder Willingham says not a word about the passages, many of them lifted directly from Humphrey Cobb's novel, most of them drafted for the script by Thompson, adding up, according to Polito, to roughly half the running time. Willingham did come up with the idea for the final scene, the German singer in the inn, but from his letter, you'd think that the idea is the scene. Screenwriters often 
think that way, as though the way Kubrick staged, shot, and edited were incidental. We'll have a lot more to say about that later. Let's get it settled once and for all so that we can all live with it. Meanwhile, Moreau, anxious to see his idea of proper justice done, descends into a prototype for strange Lovian madness. I've always tried to be true to my principles. That's the only mistake I can ever be accused of. Kubrick's approach to war, the central subject of his body of work, as noted, was way ahead of its time. Seven of his 13 films have wartime battles. All have savage killings, frequently girded by outlandish humor. It surely didn't seem that way in 1957 when the small audiences that attended Paths of Glory left horrified or in tears, as they often do today, but in retrospect, Paths of Glory partakes of an incredulous acknowledgement of absurdity that became standard issue in the 1960s in works like Catch-22, Slaughterhouse-Five, M.A.S.H., and, of course, Dr. Strangelove. Everything Miro says is disingenuous at best, deceitful at second best, and bloody insane at worst. Well, this meeting is coming to an end, and note the shot of Dax as he leaves the room. The camera goes and follows Dax alone out of the room. This shot, the way it's framed, as Alexander Walker has pointed out, occurs three times in the picture, involving successive exits from uh, two different rooms, this room again and also the, a library we haven't seen yet. In each instant, the placement of the camera, the angle, even the lighting is parallel. What changes are the men making that solitary exit? In each instance, he is the loser, in a sense, of that scene's chess game. As Brulard and Moreau emerge from the room together, artillery commander Rousseau has reported as requested. Moreau bluffs his way through that encounter, but Brulard suggests a court of inquiry for Rousseau and Moreau hastily recoils. This is another foreshadowing. There will be no avoiding an inquiry. Note that Brulard has no intention of attending the court-martial and that he deliberately tweaks Moreau by praising Dax. On uh, the staircase, Moreau threatens to ruin Dax, but he backs down when Dax asks if he is issuing a formal order for him to desist from defending the men. I love this camera shot, incidentally, following them up the stairs and taking in all three of those sources of lighting right behind them and forth to the side. This is a hierarchy, and Dax answers to Moreau, and Moreau answers to Brillard, who, after all, is the one man who can get him the promotion that he was so willing to sacrifice his men to achieve. At this point, Dax has no alternative but to order each of the three commanders to choose a man to be executed. Note that as he goes to his quarters, he's right next to that inn. In the novel, the inn is mentioned but plays no real part in the plot. In Cobb's novel, also, there are four commanders. Each of them is supposed to choose a man, four men are supposed to be executed. But one of the commanders simply refuses to go along with the order because none of his men are cowards, which is proof, at least in the novel, that resistance is at least possible. And though the script doesn't dramatize the scenes in which the men are chosen, we later discover that, as in the novel, one is chosen as a social misfit, that would be the Tim Carey character, another by Lottery, the Joe Turkle character, and Paris, Ralph Meeker, as an act of revenge and self-preservation by Roger. 
Cooper gave much thought to war as a dramatic contrivance. In a 1959 interview with Colin Young, he noted, and I'm quoting, one of the attractions of a war or crime story is that it provides an almost unique opportunity to contrast an individual of our contemporary society with a solid framework of accepted value, which the audience becomes fully aware of and which can be used as a counterpoint to a human individual emotional situation. Further, war acts as a kind of hothouse for forced quick breeding of attitudes and feeling, attitudes crystallize and come out into the open. Kubrick's observation is a recognition of the power of genre and melodrama, cinematic standbys, which we will discuss as the film progresses, but Kubrick also is acknowledging the heightened emotional responses that audiences have to the hothouse nature of movies. He said, again, speaking of paths of glory, films deal with the emotions and reflect the fragmentation of experience. It is thus misleading to try to sum up the meaning of a film verbally. And this also acknowledges the fact that we see a movie usually in a sitting in a theater. It's 90 minutes. It's like a punch to the solar plexus compared to reading a novel, which can take days or even weeks. And now we come to the court-martial scene, 11 minutes of justice mocked and miscarried. One cannot miss the obvious distinction, the, the difference between the majesty of the palace and the prison, or for that matter, the trenches. And the, again, the incredible clarity, the order that Kubrick brings to the scene. He gives us a long shot to show where every single person is positioned, including Moreau lying there on this upholstered sofa. Peter Capel, who opened the film with his anonymous narration, stands up there. He is superb here as the chief judge, refusing to waste time by reading the charges and as you'll see, failing to see why any extenuating testimony should be admitted. He is so reasonable and bored and corrupt in that sort of obliviously whiny voice. It's a wonderful performance, though you'd never guess it from his line readings. Capel was German. He spent several years in Hollywood in the 1950s working on American television, but most of his work was on German TV. He died in 1986 in Munich, not far from where Paths of Glory was shot. The light glimmers through the ornately sculptured windows. All is in perfect order. The architectural clarity of Kubrick's shots, as usual, we always know where we are and where everyone else is in keeping with the fastidiousness of the setting. And here is Timothy Carey as Private Farol, a courageous soldier but a low-grade criminal. In the novel, he's chosen over his utterly degenerate confederate Meyer because Meyer is a Jew and they don't want to go through that Dreyfus business all over again. Indeed, Farol's commander thinks he's being very clever by not singling out the Jew. When they uh, show the floor, you can't miss the chessboard parquet. The film's chief consultant, Baron von Waldenfels, walked off the set during this scene in a snit because of the way uh, Anderson's major walks around when he's questioning. According to von Waldenfels, the prosecutor should have been standing in one place, never moving. Kubrick thought that would be pretty dull, and so he sided with Anderson, and Waldenfels left and said, call me when you're finished shooting this scene. 
Tim Carey was born in Brooklyn and had just turned 28 when he shot Paths of Glory. He was born to play psychotics. He had a fabled self-destructive streak to the point where he seemed to relish being fired by directors who were intimidated by his improvisational prowess. His ability in that area will become sublimely evident as he has marched to his death. Carey assassinated a horse in Kubrick's The Killing. He sprayed beer on an unsuspecting Marlon Brando in The Wild One, and he tossed James Dean on his ass in East of Eden. He loved working with Kubrick and John Cassavetes, who admired improvisation, who insisted on improvisation, but refused to appear in the first two Godfather films. In the 1960s, he wrote, directed, and starred in The World's Greatest Sinner about a rock and roll evangelist. But he made his living scaring people in dozens of television shows. Richard Anderson, who is so wonderfully vile as the prosecutor, was a, also a prolific character actor, quite a different demeanor. He was born in New Jersey and had a contract at MGM for a while, but he never got past small parts in films, though he appeared in a great many, finding an even richer vein in television where he was all but unavoidable from the 1950s through the 1990s. The cutting here is a little different than from most of the rest of the film. Kubrick indulges himself in various angles in this scene, not his usual style, but it's a way of varying the space and adding tension so that Arno uh, at one point is shot right here, is shot straight on. Dax is uh, shot from below, Paris slightly from above. This kind of fastidious cutting whether it's done in terms of whether the camera is looking up and down or the way the shots are framed, whether he uses long shots or close-ups, the, the whole style of Kubrick has a extraordinary purposefulness to it, which a lot of critics over the years have dismissed as being cold and calculating and somehow inhumane. I fail to understand that perspective. I think the wonderful thing about Kubrick is the degree to which he allows us to know the characters. I mentioned the green zone before, and again, not just to use that as a whipping boy, but we we never really know much about any of the characters. The uh, the soldier that Matt Damon kills at the end is, just exists there to be a, a roughneck soldier who needs to be killed. But we do get to know, it's not that the script gives us backstories on all these people. We don't know anything about Dax other than the fact that he's an attorney in private life. We don't know if he's married. We don't know if he has children. We don't know very much about any of these people. But we feel that we do because far from cutting up the, the scenes, he lets us know them. He lets the actors give them these characters to us. We feel we know something about what kind of a man Ralph Meeker is and Joe Turkle is and Tim Carey is and everybody else. We feel that we know that when they walk off the screen uh, that they have a life and we can sort of imagine what their responses to different situations might be. And I think this is true of most of Kubrick's films. What a lot of people are, are irritated about, I think, with more justification, is that so many of the characters in his films are so loathsome. I have problems with Clockwork Orange for that matter. I admire the film, but I just don't want to spend a lot of time in the company of those people, any of them. But I think that there is a tremendous sense of humanity in his work, and when it doesn't come out in 
always in the characters who are often despicable, it certainly comes out in the settings and the use of music because Kubrick seems to believe that man is at his best in art, in creating music, in creating magnificent architecture like this building that we're looking at. And those are the instances, those are the proofs, the evidences of humanity at its very best, no matter how badly people act. And a lot of people think Paths of Glory... I find this absurd, but, you know, people think Paths of Glory is his best film because they're so moved by the closing sequences and they don't expect to be moved by his films. I'm just as moved by uh, watching planets dancing in space to uh, the Blue Danube. I'm very moved by uh, Humbert Humbert realizing uh, his loss when he's nailed to the floor by the doctors in the hospital of Lolita. I think that Kubrick's balance between dealing with the humanity of his characters or the lack of humanity and the world in which they exist, which has so much promise of a deliverance of a, of a great a soaring humanism is what makes his work uh, timeless. And it really is timeless. You, you don't look at it and think, for example, in this film, that that is such a film of its day. In fact, the only thing that really does date it explicitly to its period is the fact that all of the relatively good guys uh, are Americans with American accents, and the bad guys have snootier accents, British or, uh, let's say, mid-Atlantic. And this is a good place to go specifically into more detail about the music. Gerald Fried's career began with Kubrick. His first four films were Kubrick's first, the boxing documentary Day of the Fight, the war film Fear and Desire, the crime films Killer's Kiss and the Killing. In 1957, Fried had his first Hollywood assignments, but his most important work that year, again, was with Kubrick on Paths of Glory. Most of the score involves percussion, either snares or tuned drums, including timpani and tom-toms. The use of snare drums in war films was not nearly as commonplace as it would become when Paths of Glory was filmed. In fact, it became a, a terrible cliche, and I would think that the, one of the first things anyone making a war film might consider was not having snare drums on the score. Kubrick again used them to great effect, in uh, Dr. Strangelove with Laurie Johnson's snare drum adaptation of Johnny Comes Marching Home during the uh, rogue plane scenes. Other movies with snare drum scores, Advising Consent, Seven Days in May, The Candidate, JFK, Primary Colors are but a few. In later years, uh, Gerald Fried remarked on Kubrick's control, an aspect of which was his flair for paramusical effects. A great example of that is the startling train station opening of Killer's Kiss, where the score is a rhythmic foley of chugging trains, warning bells, and unintelligible announcements. Fried extends that percussiveness in his music. He opened the killing with a solo timpani, adding percussive strings. But it's with the final scene in the Paths of Glory that Kubrick broke with the customary approach of using music as descriptive or invisible backing, as that captive German singer reduces French soldiers and generations of filmgoers to tears. Before that episode, Fried's score, his last for Kubrick, is astutely measured. After it, Kubrick would make an art of using diegetic music, that is, music which stems from the on-screen action, either because a band is seen playing or a character is listening to a radio. Dax is in moral high dudgeon uh, throughout this scene, and here he pivots towards the camera for a conventional star turn, pure Hollywood. 
not Kubrick's best moment, I think, but it's very well done. We can only speculate as to whether this kind of shot was about at Douglas's command or simply Kubrick showing that he had mastered the Hollywood style of starstruck filmmaking. I like the uh, the guy sitting down in the middle there. Doesn't know what to think. Back to the guard room. The hearing is closed. The court will now retire to deliberate. Here we have another fade to black as the court martial ends, and we fade up to an almost unrecognizable Bert Fried, yet another ubiquitous presence on television as Sergeant Boulanger, brusquely giving instructions to the firing squad, walking up and down the line. I've been put in charge and made personally responsible for any lack of... I think uh, this is a good example of Kubrick's uh, gifts as a photojournalist coming to his aid as a filmmaker in the choice of the setting, the bombed-out house in the back, the trees at the center and the right. There are so many shots here that just are like great still photographs brought to life where it isn't just the activity in the foreground that interests us, but the setting in which we see them. And this cut is another example, the two guards marching against those lights. Where do those lights come from? We don't know what the source is, but what an image that is. And now a quick cut to the guardhouse as uh, General Moreau's duck dinners are delivered without utensils, as we will soon learn. They don't want any of the prisoners to fork themselves to death. This shot is a prize example of Kubrick's economy, a kind of shooting that was not that uncommon in the 1950s. A single camera move that lasts 85 seconds. It begins as the food was delivered. Then the camera pulls back as Farrell digs in, and all three men are situated in the shot by what appears to be the natural lighting coming from the window in the rear, although I'm sure it's somewhat more controlled than that, as suggested by the reflections off those what appear to be salt and pepper shakers. The speech uh, that's coming up in which Paris uh, meditates about his mortality versus that of a cockroach is taken directly from the novel, but in the novel it simply fades into the next scene with no wind-up. Here the script improves on it immeasurably with one of the best remembered lines in the film, Farol pounding the uh, roach and saying, now you have the edge on him, which is another reliable laugh line, one of the few in the film. According to film legend, this sequence required five hours and 64 takes because the vegetarian Carrie couldn't bear to kill a roach. It was said that 18 duck dinners were brought, a dozen roaches killed, and Ralph Meeker, a non-smoker, forced to puff his way through 11 packs of cigarettes. This uh, all sounds like publicity machine malarkey since the roach is killed off-screen. Still, could the gesture and the line be done any more perfectly than Carrie does? And uh, here, another rear dissolve to the door, introducing Father Dupre. If some of the actors seemed born to their roles, including Douglas, Manjou, McReady, and Carrie, others were cast against type, including Wayne Morris and Richard Anderson. But I think the strangest casting in the film has to be Emile Meyer as Father Dupree. The New Orleans-born Meyer, with his gravel pit of a voice and low-born pronunciations, was an omnipresent ruffian or tough cop in 1950s and 1960s movies and TV. He tried to kill Shane. He beat the crap out of Sidney Falco in Sweet Smell of Success. He practically drooled sadistic sarcasm in most of his characterizations. So we may speculate if Kubrick cast him because the part of the priest is simply hopeless.
In a film that tries to skirt cliché, Father Dupree is all cliché. His every other line begins, my son, <laughs> and Kubrick shoots him, actually taking confession in a ray of light right out of Cecil B. DeMille. Meyer's unpolished style, good actor though he is, at least gives the character a little muscle. As it turns out, he'll need it. Private Arnaud is about to sucker punch him after his freak out, and Paris will send Arnaud flying across the room. Then the medic will have to save him for the execution, one of the ironies that runs throughout this last third of the film. When Father Dupre gets manhandled by Private Farrell on the death walk, there'll be no stuntman to help him out. After this sequence, the, this little fight scene, then we will cut to the scene in which Dax confronts Roger, a scene shot in shadows, almost like a cave. This time the camera will shoot Roger from below, as if grilling him, putting him in the spotlight, while Dax, removing his boots, is exceedingly relaxed. Indeed, he will show a sadistic side here, toying with Roger before ordering him to take charge of the firing squad. This is one of the four points of melodrama that Kubrick's film employs to close off emotional sores and lead to a satisfying conclusion, despite the appalling lack of justice in the main story. Melodrama, what is it? I would suggest it is what popular culture offers us in the absence of divine justice. It is human nature to long for justice in the next world to compensate for its scant supply in this one. All religions, pagan and monotheistic, have built-in guarantees that the bad guys will get theirs burning in hell and that the meek shall inherit the earth, virgins, or wings. Melodrama builds on that guarantee, promising us that the car chase will end well, the villain will pay for his crimes, the damsel will be relieved from distress, and the hero rewarded for his courage. Melodrama is derided in serious art as a sinkhole of cliches that undermine all attempts at depicting reality. But movies are different. From its earliest days, great filmmakers like D.W. Griffith and Charlie Chaplin recognized that melodrama and genre could be fine-tuned into a serious art. For one example, consider Griffith's Way Down East, a madly riveting film based on a play that was faded and ridiculous even then. Kubrick actually considered imposing a happy ending because he needed a hit and wanted money. He backed down, recognizing that while a novel can end without hope or a succor, a commercial film cannot. Humphrey Cobb's novel is remorseless in its criticism of war and military logic. A 90-minute film requires some degree of emotional resolution. This was a challenge for a film that ends with the execution of three innocent men and critiques military absolutism to a degree unparalleled in cinema, especially at a time when war films celebrated military leaders or forgave them, as in the Cane Mutiny, when we're told that we ought to honor Captain Quig despite the evidence of ten reels and our own eyes. Kubrick's film goes about this with four additions to Cobb's story, each a melodramatic finish to a plot point suggested but left hanging in the novel, begging for some kind of justice. The third and fourth points come at the very end, in Dax's venting of spleen against Brulard, allowing Dax and us the semblance of a moral victory, and in the faithful Hazar, allowing Dax and us a wallow in reflective mercy. 
But first, Roger is exposed to Dax as a coward, forced not only to confront his own perfidy, but also to administer the coup de grace. Though unlike the novel, they will be administered off camera. Second, with perfect timing, as Roger is dismissed, a second and more important strain of justice is brought into focus with the appearance of Rousseau, the artilleryman who, in the hope of saving the three prisoners, will inadvertently destroy General Moreau. In the novel, Moreau succeeds, like Roger, in dispatching the witness against him by sending him to certain death at the front. And here we have another marvelous abrupt edit to the palace ball. The first of only two scenes in the entire film with women. In trying to drum up interest in the film among women, the film's publicity team encouraged articles about the gowns seen here. That's how desperate they were. No Kubrickian can fail to notice the diegetic use of Blue Danube, which during World War I and for half a century to follow inclined the world to think of Habsburg-era balls. After 2001 A Space Odyssey, one could no longer hear the piece without visualizing celestial globes in orbit. Brulard is summoned in a superb deep focus tracking shot as he excuses himself from his partner in the background. The foreground finds Moreau dancing with a much younger woman, oblivious to all else. Then the camera tracks back with Brulard until an abrupt cut to the library finds Dax pacing the floor. This absolutely spellbinding scene, lasting four minutes and change, begins with the usual social graces, including an apology for not inviting anyone of Dax's rank to the ball. Then Dax admits that it isn't a social call. This is a central scene in the film, dependent almost entirely on the way Douglas chooses to play it, though Manjou is especially inspired here. The general concedes that Dax's men must have acted bravely since so many of them died. When Dax affects the demeanor of an earnest student searching for enlightenment, the general responds with an ungainly mouthful of words, justifying his decision. Why should the brass take the blame? Now, most scriptwriters, today certainly, and even then, I think, would have cut Brulard's speech in half without losing a morsel of information. And most actors faced with that speech would have either asked for cuts or stretched it out with breath-saving punctuation, not Manjou. The words trip off his tongue, sounding neither verbose nor practiced. It's a delicious piece of acting, and Kubrick must have been delighted to see it handled so adroitly. Meanwhile, Dax keeps drinking, playing the entire scene without urgency, despite the incredible urgency of the situation. In a few hours, three men will be executed, and Dax thinks he has the goods to stop it. But Kubrick, knowing a great moment when he sees it, times the whole sequence to climax at the shutting of the door. The precise timing on the part of the actors and the editor is everything here. The power of a slam door is purely cinematic. As prose, it would be insignificant exposition. So, daringly, Dax almost allows Roulard, who has now taken umbrage at his last remark, to escape, casually dropping his bomb just as he politely opens the door for the general. Have you heard that General Moreau ordered his own battery commander, Captain Rousseau, to open fire on his own positions during... And then makes the remark, slam the door, insert of a close-up of Roulard. 
And now their little dance begins as they walk back as a couple from the door, and Dax tells him the story with this oddly sing-song repetitiveness, again as though they have all the time in the world. As Broulard examines the depositions, Dax practically struts. When Broulard mentions blackmail, Dax doesn't return to the demeanor of the earnest subordinate or even of the dedicated attorney. He simply makes a smarmy remark about Broulard's difficulty. This is a strange moment, and it justifies Broulard coming to the conclusion, as he will, that Dax is angling for a promotion, particularly as Dax reserves all his anger in an attack on Moreau. This scene will have an important follow-up. But Douglas's performance here all but justifies the general's offensive assumption that Dax really is, as he will later say, his boy, a fellow master of intrigue. If he were functioning primarily in his role as an attorney, he could have been more convincing. He could have been even making a plea. He doesn't do that. He's just a little bit too officious and authoritative and confident that Broulard is going to have to change his mind. And of course, that's not going to happen. So this time it is Broulard who exits alone in that shot I mentioned earlier that precisely mimics the earlier leave-taking of Dax from a different room. Because this match goes to Dax, at least for the present, and we fade to black on him. A long fade to the next morning, which is bright with sunshine and introduced by the crowing of a rooster and the marching of the detail assigned to deliver the prisoners. The entire sequence was shot in Schlesheim Palace's Grand Garden, the whole execution sequence. Paths of Glory began shooting in Munich on March 18, 1957, and finished on June 7th after 64 days of filming, all but five requiring the participation of Kirk Douglas. And here is another one of Kubrick's great long shots, the camera welcoming in Sergeant Boulanger and his men, following them as they carry a stretcher all the way to the opposite wall, and then swinging to the right to pick up Paris. Ralph Meeker clearly now responding to the fact that he's about to be marched to his death, and has a strange encounter with Boulanger, as each of them asks, how are you, before Paris breaks down, and is then restored by the sergeant's logic. He's going to die anyway. Does he want to die bravely or as a coward? Ralph Meeker always brings intelligence to his characters, and from this point on, his stability is sure. I don't know why uh, Kubrick's early films are occasionally dismissed. Certainly, they didn't have the impact that 2001 had, or Strangelove for that matter. No one had ever seen a film quite like Strangelove, and 2001 just was sort of a cosmic event when it opened, no pun intended. It was a movie that everybody in the, in the world was, who loved movies was talking about. I think part of the reason that Paths of Glory is undervalued by some reviewers is that they fear or they resist the sentimentality of the clothes. They find the film a little bit too, too Aristotelian in, in making its points. It's not a subtle film although I think it's, it, the filmmaking has great subtleties in it, but it's a film that knows exactly where it's going from the first shot. It's a series, as I said earlier, I think of chess matches in which one character 
tries to best another character at the same time that a war is going and all of these men all of these expendable men are the ones actually who will put the medals on the chests of the Brulards and Miros of the world. It's a very powerful movie, and some, I think some reviewers, while don't like the later Kubrick because he's too cold, don't like the earlier Kubrick maybe because he's too hot. Anyway, we've cut abruptly again to the parade ground, the sound of drums, the rattling of the sneers. Timothy Carey is remarkable here, falling apart, making up lines. Why can't they die? Why do I have to die? As he clutches at the priest, much to the discomfort of Emil Meyer, who was expecting a stately walk, as scripted, and hated Carey's histrionics. In an interview given near the end of his life, Carrie said that Meyer wanted to punch me because in my death scene, I was biting his arms saying, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. Nor does he let up when he's tied to the stake. Again, according to Carrie, he was supposed to remain silent here, but he kept moaning and Kubrick came over to him and said, Tim, you better make this good. Kirk Douglas doesn't like it. Upon completing his last scene, Carrie was fired by producer James Harris, who told him, you've already stolen all the scenes. Of course, they kept all that clutching and moaning in the film, and it makes the scene far more potent than it would otherwise have been. The entire sequence is actually pointedly clinical. This is what an execution looks like. It's a party for the brass, complete with photographers. And in this period, capital punishment was very much a topic of conversation. It, the clinical presentation of capital punishment really uh, became much more widely noted a year later when Robert Wise made his film, I Want to Live, and took us inside a gas chamber. But this was a time when uh, Carol Chessman case was in the news. I remember sitting in a classroom and the kids counting down the seconds before they pulled the switch on the electric chair. And uh, capital punishment was still very much in America. It was in Britain for a few more years. The guillotine was still operating in France. And there's something horrifying about tying up three men amid all this pomp. It's actually reminiscent of the kind of uh, hangings one reads about in, well, the lynchings in America or the hangings in at the Old Bailey in Britain, where there are photographers and there are uh, kiosks selling food and people are partying and barbecuing and having a great deal of fun. This is fun strictly for the brass, but there is a, much of that in this film, especially when we cut to right after the execution and we see the two generals celebrating themselves over a hearty breakfast, or at least that's how it appears. Here is Sanoban for the first time looking actually a little bit disturbed about what he has to do, not overly so, but reading the order of execution. Roger now is in command and we'll have to tie the blindfolds. This is another wonderful shot, perfectly symmetrical, a photograph, deep focus. They've squeezed the cheeks of Joe Turkle's character, Arno once, and you sort of fear, watching the, these last few minutes, that he's going to do it again, but he doesn't. Turkle at least gets to sleep this one out. Now he comes over to Ferrol and ties the blindfold around him. But there's a really wonderful moment coming up when he ties it on Meeker. <laughs> Before that, we have these cutaways. Watch your Brulard here, staring at Moreau, oblivious. Brulard, of course, is the only one who knows that Moreau will be the final victim. 
Now watch Meeker's response here when he apologizes. It's an exceptional moment with an inexpressible mixture of graciousness, irony, and disdain. I mean, how do you direct a scene like that? I suspect all you do is hope that the actor understands the moment and knows what to do. And he certainly does. And as the priest finishes his ministrations, we get two return inserts, one of Dax, and then a continuation of that two-shot of the generals, this time with Moreau returning the look until Broulard looks away, George McReady making a point of seeming unperturbed, having a wonderful time. Then the snare drums are replaced by the piping of birds. Roger orders the firing. The position of Farol in the middle noticed his corpse on one knee is taken directly from the novel. At this point in the novel, the man in charge of the execution, who's not Roger, comes and shoots a bullet into the brain of each man, and that's how the book ends. But obviously, that's not how the film is going to end, because the film has to at least tie together a few points, these melodramatic points, if you will, that give us some sense of justice and hope after that moment. And I love the fact that Broulard pretends that he doesn't even know that he's invited Dax to this breakfast. So perfectly planned, and look how quickly he pulls out the shiv to uh, put it in Moreau. Dax clearly is a little surprised. McReady, I don't think enough can be said about his performance here. He had to put up with so many bad parts in the latter part of his career, uh, occasionally playing uh, in Robin Hood programmers, under unrecognizable in blonde wigs, and in things like alligator people and, and so forth. But he really was a memorable actor. Lenny Bruce used to do an impersonation of him that was quite good. And look at his responses here. When he, he, he registers every, every, every moment, he registers either relief or shock or a momentary of distress, and then he's calm again. But it won't amount to much. Those things never do. The public forgets. Public? You've got to have the right to clear your name. You cannot allow such violent insinuations. And then he stands up and says this line that only Moreau, completely delusional, could say. You're making me the goat. The only completely innocent man in this whole affair. Looking at Dax with complete contempt. I have only one last thing to say to you, George. The man you stabbed in the back is a soldier. What will he do? Will he commit suicide? Will he stand for trial? Will he actually get past the inquiry? We don't know, but as soon as he leaves, Brillard calls him a fool. And he's history. And incidentally, that long walk that he took by himself was the third time that same shot was framed. This match definitely goes to Brillard, and General Moreau has to take the perp walk. I remember the first time I saw this film, I guess it was in the early 60s, that moment when Moreau walks out of the room. I think it gave, the whole audience was like, yes, you know, it, it's melodrama in the purest sense. A bad guy gets his. The only question now is how it will play out between Manjou and the Dax. And there's a humorous moment here, actually, where he says, uh, he calls him my son, and he says, I'm not your son. And he says, well, I didn't mean a biological arrangement. But there's really nothing comical here. It's a strange scene. It contains uh, perhaps Manjou's best work in the film and Douglas is most bizarre. Banjo changes his emotional affect with virtually every line. You never know what he'll do next. 
But the script, I think, fails Dax, whose big moment is here to call Brulard a sadistic, degenerate old man, which is at the same time an overstatement and not nearly enough, practically sobbing as he finishes the line. This outburst beyond the pale of army etiquette, even for an officer, but it shows Dax as a weaker man than Brulard thought. And instead of reprising the anger he displayed when, when Dax said, I'm not your boy, Brulard lightens up. He realizes he's dealing with an idealist, the village idiot, as he says, completely diffuses the situation, uh, making the case for his own purported innocence. What did I do wrong? And for once, Douglas underplays the line that closes the scene. Because you don't know the answer to that question. Walking to his quarters, Dax hears the cat calls and whistles from the inn and walks over to observe what's going on. In the novel, this inn exists primarily as a reprieve for the men on leave from the front. It is a masterstroke, I think, to make the inn the setting for the film's emotional payoff. This incidentally is a comedian or a comic actor named Jerry Hausner, who was, uh, appeared frequently in television shows like I Love Lucy. Calder Willingham apparently convinced Kubert that he couldn't end a film with the execution as in the novel. The result is one of the most crucial scenes Kubert shot to date, one that would echo in much of his subsequent work as he increasingly relied on diegetic music to shape the emotional and intellectual impact and meaning of his films. The faithful Khazar alters the film's entire pitch, and it's by no means an accidental or arcane choice as a, as a piece of music. A 19th century ballad about a young cavalryman's enduring love for his woman it is believed to have been composed in the 1820s, though there is some evidence that it may have been around 40 years before, perhaps with a different lyric. In the early years of the 20th century, it was revived in an adaptation by Heinrich Franzen and became a familiar nostalgic anthem of Weimar Germany. More relevantly, it had incredibly become an international hit in the months before Pads of Glory went before the cameras. Louis Armstrong encountered the faithful Khazar during a European tour in December 1955, fell in love with the song, commissioned a special lyric, and performed it all over Europe, recording it in Milan, and then introducing it on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1956. And that was just the beginning. In late 1956, the English band leader Ted Heath recorded an instrumental version that made the charts on both sides of the Atlantic. A few months later, as Kubrick's film was nearing completion, Vera Lynn, England's best-loved singer of the war years, recorded her own hit version with new lyrics, strange new lyrics that obliged the record company to change the name of the song to Don't Cry My Love. First line is, a soldier boy so brave and gay, with head held high, he marched away. Now that's a lyric you couldn't do anymore. Vera Lynn, who, as I speak, is 93 years old and the author of a recently published memoir about her war years, would figure directly in Dr. Strangelove, which also ends with an entirely unexpected song, Vera Lynn's 1954 recording of We'll Meet Again, 
accompanied by a choir, this time evoking not tears from the audience, but an astonished laughter. The young actress who sings the song in the film was known professionally as Suzanne Christian and would, of course, become Christiane Kubrick, the director's wife of more than 40 years. According to publicity at the time, Kubrick searched for months for the right singer or the right actress. This seems unlikely given the film's schedule and the relatively late decision to shoot the scene at all. Much of the power in the scene stems from Christian's sterling performance, soothing the savage breasts that had been riled by Jerry Hausner as the innkeeper. Kubrick assembled a remarkable retinue of men here. They're mostly German policemen with fake hair. More than 2,000 false beards and mustaches were prepared for this film. And they represent all generations, which was certainly true of that war, from old men to striplings. The editing, the tempo, the repetitions, how could it be done any better? 50 plus years later, this scene's energy is entirely undiminished and extraordinarily moving. Of course, there is something contagious about tears. Nothing makes an audience cry quicker than watching people cry on stage. Dax is clearly humanized by the experience. That's Kirk Douglas's humanized face. The men aren't monsters. There will be life after this godforsaken war. And then he is instantly notified that they are moving right back to the front. And we know that most of them won't return. I'll give the men a few minutes more, Sergeant. Yes, sir. The drums come up again. Dax marches to his quarters. And then the delightful credits, which also have a soothing effect, like those 1930s and 1940s movies in which Heathcliff and Kathy or the Sullivan brothers are shown as ghosts over the end title. Yes, they died, but they are now romping around in heaven. Seeing the actors reminds us that this is a movie and turns our attention from the characters to the actors playing them. And why not? It is a tremendous cast. Still do not miss Gerald Fried's canny arrangement here of the faithful Khazar with its lumpy trombones and tuba smears all but drowned out by the rattling sneer drums, reminding us that this is a film about life in the military. <laughs> 